This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with uh, Sharon Arunashalam. He's at the uh, National University Hospital in Singapore. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you, Pedro. So, Sharon, obviously a, a topic that is of uh, significant interest to all gynecologic oncologists, a disease that we rarely see, but obviously when we see a patient with gestational trophoblastic disease, um, often we're running to, to our books or to, to the Internet to uh, look up what's the latest on, on this um, uh, disease. So it, it's a great honor to speak with you about it. And I wanted to start by having you kind of go through the classification of gestational trophoblastic disease, uh, including molar pregnancy, um, choriocarcinoma, uh, epithelioid uh, trophoblastic tumors, and finally, placental site trophoblastic tumors. Yes. Uh, in fact, there's been a lot of uh, confusion on the terminology of gestational trophoblastic disease and its classification. Now, various terms like uh, gestational trophoblastic disease, gestational trophoblastic neoplasia, gestational trophoblastic tumor, etc., have been used in the literature. The classification of gestational trophoblastic tumor was confusing as many people used clinical diagnosis interchangeably with histological diagnosis. So, in 1967, the UICC, or the European Cancer Organization, proposed a classification which divided uh, gestational trophoblastic disease into clinical and morphological categories. The clinical category in which uh, the trophoblastic disease was diagnosed without histology was subdivided again into metastatic and non-metastatic. And the morphological category was used when the actual histology was available. Now, later in 1973, Dr. Charles Hammond from the Southeastern Trophoblastic Disease Center in the United States. He further subdivided the clinical metastatic group into good prognostic and poor prognostic categories. In the Asia, the Japanese Society of ONG classified trophoblastic disease into five categories. The complete hereditary mole, the partial hereditary mole, invasive mole, choriocarcinoma, and then the last category was persistent trophoblastic disease. And the Chinese use a similar classification. Because of all this confusion, FIGO had a meeting, and the current understanding, according to the International Federation, proposed in the year 2000, is that gestational trophoblastic disease comprises a wide spectrum of neoplastic disorders that arise from the placental trophoblastic tissue. And uh, these orders include the benign components, which are the complete hydratiform mole and the partial hydratiform mole. And then the malignant gestational trophoblastic neoplasia or GTM, which includes choriocarcinoma, placental site trophoblastic tumor, and the epithelioid trophoblastic tumor, and invasive moles. Now, in terms of origin, the complete mole, the partial mole, invasive mole, and choriocarcinoma arise from the cyto and syncyto trophoblasts, whereas the placental site trophoblastic tumor and the epithelial trophoblastic tumor 
arise from the intermediate trophoblast of the placenta. And this has got some clinical significance in terms of HCG production, which maybe we can talk later. So currently, the terms, histological terms only should be used if histology is available. Otherwise, the term gestational trophoblastic neoplasia should be used. And when, when you're looking at gestational trophoblastic neoplasia, can you discuss with us as to what's happening with the incidence of this disease? Are we seeing any changes in the trends for the better or for the worse? Yeah, this is another area of um, uh, confusion and the differences in the literature. The incidence seems to vary quite a, between, quite a bit between countries. It's to be more common in the East than in the West. In, uh, in the Americas and Europe, uh, trophoblastic disease is said to develop in about one in 1,000 pregnancies. But in East Asia, it is said to be about one in 120 pregnancies. The main problem with all these figures and incidence is that the denominator. Now, there is no way to accurately record all the pregnancies that occur in the community. Many of these patients go without reporting because of illegal terminations or undiagnosed early miscarriages. And many of the patients in the underdeveloped countries deliver outside the hospital. So it is very difficult to compare incident data between different countries very accurately. And when you compare the population-based figures versus the hospital-based figures, the differences are even darker. Um, so um, in general, it's believed that the incidence is higher in the East, and there's also now evidence to show that the incidence is actually decreasing even in the East. And uh, many factors have been proposed for the differences. And among them, I think nutrition plays a very important role. Uh, in fact, in Singapore, uh, when I started uh, my training about 40 years ago, it was a very, very common disease where I used to run a mole clinic every week. Now I, I hardly see uh, many molar pregnancies uh, uh, in a year. And I think, in fact, in Singapore, obesity, childhood obesity has become a major problem. So uh, I think the incidences are decreasing in many countries due to better nutrition, but still it seems to be more common in the East than in the West. I see. And, and what, are, what are the strategies for diagnosis and staging of this disease? What do you think is, is the most uh, recommended today? I think it's very important to understand that potentially any pregnancy may end up with trophoblastic disease. Uh, in centers that carry out routine ultrasound in early pregnancy, the majority of molar pregnancies are diagnosed between 8 and 12 weeks of gestation. Uh, usually the absence of a gestation sac, uh, a high serum HCG level, uh, and the presence of a mixed echogenic vascular mat in the ultrasound will be diagnostic for a complete molar pregnancy. So in such centers, the classical presentation that we read as trainees of uh, bleeding per vaginum, uterus larger than dates, Severe hyperemesis, early preeclampsia, and hyperthyroidism are very rarely seen. However, in many underdeveloped countries where no such scanning facilities are available, the patients do present with the classical signs and concerns that I just mentioned. 
and this should raise the suspicion of molar pregnancy. The, while the complete mole is often diagnosed pre-treatment, the diagnosis of partial mole is far more difficult and is almost always only reached after a histological diagnosis of the products of conception, as most of these patients that actually present as a miscarriage. And uh, this is why it is highly recommended that all products of conception at elective terminations should be sent for histological evaluation so as not to miss partial moles because they can have a gestation fact and they can have fetal heart sounds in early ultrasound. Where there is difficulty in distinguishing between complete or partial moles, uh, pathologists often use a ploidy analysis and other cytogenetic tests distinguish between them. When it comes to gestational trophoblastic neoplasia, where there is no histology, this is more complex and often a high index of suspicion is needed. Generally, following an evacuation of a complete mole, about 15% of them may end up with trophoblastic neoplasia, whereas the, with a partial mole, it's said to be about 1%. And uh, in these patients, a histological diagnosis is not available or it's not possible because the lesions may be at sites where biopsy may not be possible. So the diagnosis is made solely on the basis of serology and imaging. And uh, so that's why one of the most important part of the follow-up of complete mole or a partial mole is for regular assessment of serum HCG levels post-evacuation. In most cases, the HCG level will normalize within the first six to eight weeks. But if there is either plateauing or a secondary rise of the HCG, then that should raise the suspicion of GTN or gestation trophoblastic neoplasia. Another pointer will be persistent bleeding after an evacuation of the mole. While incomplete evacuation of the mole is the most common cause of this, it may also be due to the high levels of HCG and metastatic disease. And uh, in these cases, uh, a cure charge may place diagnosis. Now, if you suspect a gestation trophoblastic neoplasia, then further investigation or imaging by pelvic ultrasound, a chest X-ray, and uh, are the basic tests that need to be done. And if extra uterine metastatic disease or extra uh, pulmonary metastasis diagnosed uh, is uh, thought to be present, then a CT scan of the abdomen, thorax, and the brain should be done. Now, one has to remember that DTN is very unique in the field of oncology uh, in that it's probably the only malignancy that we treat with chemotherapy without histology. Right. Now, I want to, uh, yeah, I want to say, uh, say a couple of other points to remember uh, about gestation uh, trophoblastic neoplasia. Now, most of us are on the lookout for trophoblastic neoplasia after an evacuation of the complete mole or a partial mole. But we forget that it can occur after any type of pregnancy, including normal pregnancy, miscarriages, and ectopics. So any patient who continues to bleed her vaginum on and off in the postpartum period after normal pregnancy or after a miscarriage or ectopic, should raise the suspicion of trophoblastic neoplasia. 
simple serum HCG or a urine pregnancy test may change the diagnosis. So similarly, any otherwise healthy young woman of reproductive age, if she presents with a brain stroke, GPN or gestation tubulosity uh, neoplasia must be ruled out. Because the antecedent pregnancy causing the brain mess could have occurred months or years ago. And again, if a young woman presents suddenly with hemoptysis and chest X-ray showing metastatic disease, please think of gestation tubulosity neoplasia. And Sharon, on, in terms of the uh, overview on the current treatment of molar disease, uh, wh what is the, the standard recommendation now? Uh, before that, you asked me about the staging of uh, the disease in your earlier question. Maybe I just finished uh, talking about it. Uh, the uh, staging is, uh, in most cancers, uh, done to relate to prognosis. When the International Federation of ONG introduced a staging system in 2000, there was some concern among some of the experts in the field as to whether it is really prognostic. Because the staging proposed by FIGO or the International Federation does not directly correlate with the prognosis. For example, the lung is the most common site for metastatic disease in trophoblastic uh, neoplasia and considered as stage three according to the FIGO staging. However, not all so-called metastatic disease to the lungs are malignant. They could just be molar tissue spreading to the lungs, often disappearing spontaneously after evacuation of the mole. And uh, similarly in the vagina, where the anterior vagina is a known site for so-called metastatic disease, and which disappears with the evacuation of the mole or with single-agent chemotherapy. So a more appropriate way to prognosticate in trophoblastic disease would be to use the World Health Organization's scoring system, which quite accurately predicts the prognosis and enables the doctor to make a right choice of treatment. Interestingly, if you look at the scoring system, the lung and vagina metastatic disease are given zero points. When you compare it with the FIGO staging, lungs is considered stage three. That's why I think there is some uh, discrepancy between the staging and the scoring system. But uh, currently it has been internationally agreed that for reporting purposes, it is recommended that both the stage and the score is used together. For example, stage two, score five, or stage four, score nine. But in most centers, treatment is almost always based on the WHO scoring system rather than the stage. I see, and, um, and now when, when looking at the patients that actually need treatment, then what are, what are the, uh, the, the recommendations that are generally indicated? Uh, for molar pregnancy, the current treatment of choice is evacuation of the uterus by vacuum suction, followed by curative charge, regardless of the size of the uterus. Uh, it is often recommended that an oxytocin drip is instituted just before the evacuation and continued for a few hours to reduce the risk of hemorrhage. However, one has to be careful 
when evacuating a uterus larger than 16 weeks gestational size, as some of these patients may experience acute respiratory distress syndrome due to a massive pulmonary embolization of the molar vesicles. Mm. And, uh, but fortunately, most of these patients would recover with just ventilatory support. Uh, the other thing which used to happen previously is giving prostaglandins to evacuate the mole prior to a keratage, especially when the uterus was large. Uh, this practice is not recommended anymore as they seem to increase the risk of uh, post-molar trophoblastic neoplasia requiring chemotherapy. Now, in highly selected cases where the patient is more than 40 years old, uh, completed a family, or has concurrent uterine pathology, a total hysterectomy with the mole in situ uh, may be performed, and uh, the ovaries can be conserved, and uh, no lymphadenectomy is required. Now, patients who present late or those with very high HCG levels may be found to have very large ovarian cysts on imaging. These are called picoluteal cysts, and uh, they are often due to the high levels of HCG, and they will spontaneously resolve after the evacuation of the mole. They do not require any surgical treatment. Now, in the management of complete mole or a partial mole, the post-mole evacuation surveillance is mandatory to enable early diagnosis of trophobastic neoplasia, or GTM. Now, normally this involves serial estimation of the HCG. We normally do it uh, weekly till three consecutive negative values. And after that, it's repeated monthly for another six months. And if the patient remains well, no further uh, HCG tests are performed. Now, however, if the patient uh, gets pregnant again, it's recommended that a HCG is performed once in the postpartum period. Now, generally, the risk of recurrence after one mole is about 2%, but it's much higher if the patient continues to have consecutive molar pregnancy. And in the setting where there is a rising beta ACG during the follow-up, um, what, what is your thought process with regards to when to initiate uh, treatment? Now, normally, if the HCG rises, uh, depending on the centers, uh, uh, we, uh, for example, in our place, if the HCG remains uh, plateauing for three consecutive weeks, or if they start to rise and after two consecutive rises, we would actually do the metastatic survey and then call the patient according to the W, uh, the World Health Organization scoring system, and then decide on the type of therapy that the patient needs. And Sharon, when looking at, like, for example, a patient's ACG trend and is non-reassuring after the initial diagnosis, and the evacuation of a molar pregnancy, what is the current thought on the role of actually doing a second DNC, a second evacuation? Uh, well, historically, the second curatage was a very common practice in the old days. Uh, when patients often presented with a very large uterine, and evacuation was just done with a, a dilatation and curatage, 
and the vacuum suction was not available. And many of the times, the evacuation is incomplete, and the patient has continued to bleed, and often needed a second clitoris to stop the bleeding. However, nowadays, most patients present uh, early or diagnosed early with ultrasound, and uh, are treated very well with vacuum suction. The idea of the cutotarch is usually to make sure there's no vascular molar disease or if they've undergone a malignant transformation to choriocarcinoma. But one has got to remember that both these conditions almost always produce irregular vaginal bleeding. So in the absence of any vaginal bleeding uh, during follow-up and the pelvic ultrasound shows a thin endometrial lining, uh, a routine second uh, dilatation in cutotarch is uh, not recommended. And and Sharon, for you know, certainly I've heard of the role of prophylactic chemotherapy. Uh, what what is this approach, and are there ideal patients for for this treatment? Yes, the initial rationale for the administering prophylactic chemotherapy was uh, based on the observation that about fifteen to twenty percent of patients developed postmolar gestation tropobuffic neoplasia requiring chemotherapy. So it was thought that by chemoprophylaxis that we could actually reduce its number. Uh, but uh, a few studies showed that reduction was only in about 3 to 5 percent, and chemotherapy was still needed in some of the patients. Now, one must remember that chemotherapy itself is toxic, and many of the patients who may not ever develop tropobuffic neoplasia would have received potentially toxic drugs. And uh, also, even if they did develop tropobuffic neoplasia, the vast majority were cured very easily by chemotherapy. So the practice has been abandoned in most centers. But I think in places where post-evacuation follow-up is not available or patients are very unlikely to come back and uh, for surveillance and default follow-up, Prophylactic chemotherapy may have a place. Uh, some of the factors that uh, are used to select these patients are the older patients or those with very large uterine size or very high HCG levels uh, may be considered for prophylactic chemotherapy in these circumstances. Now, as far as the uh, drugs used, either methotrexate or actinomycin D can be used as single agent for prophylaxis. And uh, the pitotexate is given intramuscularly, and the actinomycin D is given intravenously. And they are just given as a single cause, either during the evacuation or within 10 days of evacuation. I see. And now I wanted to ask you some specifics about, about patients, and particularly, for example, the patients that have chemo-resistant disease but wish to preserve their fertility. What do we do about those patients? Yeah, thanks for asking this question, Adam. Uh, I'm going to take this opportunity to talk about the role of surgery in uh, tropobiotic disease. Now, because of the extreme efficacy of chemotherapy in the disease, many people tend to forget that uh, uh, or tend to regard surgery as playing a minor role in the treatment. However, in my opinion, I think surgery plays a very important role. One of the situations you just mentioned when a patient has chemo-resistant disease. Now, if the chemo-resistant disease is extra-uterine, then uh, 
her hysterectomy is not indicated and she would require uh, further chemotherapy. But if the resistant focus is in the uterus, such as the focus of invasive motor choriocarcinoma in the myometrium, in the old days, the patient, despite being young, would have had a hysterectomy. But these patients can very easily be treated by a localized resection, like a myomectomy, and the uh, uterus can be preserved and the fertility can be preserved. And uh, these tumor nodules have a very nice false capsule and are shelled out very easily. Now, similarly, resistant solitary foci in the lungs and brain can also be surgically removed, provided they are in accessible sites. So that's very in interesting. Opinion, yeah, I, I had not heard of that uh, yeah. that option of uh, almost doing a myomectomy for uh, gestational disease. Uh, very interesting. Yes, I think this is a procedure which, uh, if you have done it once, you find it is so easy, and uh, how you can save the uterus. Uh, 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 we have done quite a lot of cases in our place, and uh, patients' fertility have been preserved, and they have come back as pregnant and delivered normal babies. Now, coming back to uh, the role of surgery, I think in selected cases, primary surgery before chemotherapy may be prudent. For example, in patients with a solitary brain meds at accessible sites, primary surgery to remove the brain meds before chemotherapy can actually reduce or eliminate the risk of catastrophic brain hemorrhage, which can occur with the chemotherapy. And... Uh, I've seen a patient who had brain meds and when we started chemotherapy, she just dropped dead in front of us. Uh, these were the days before CT scan was available and we didn't know the, uh, the patient of the brain meds. Now, similarly, in patients presenting with very large choriocarcinoma involving the uterus, I think a primary hysterectomy to reduce the tumor load before chemotherapy can result in giving much less toxic chemotherapy for a much shorter time, almost like treating ovarian cancer. And Sharon, when looking at uh, the patients that have, this is somewhat of a, another difficult scenario I would imagine to, to manage, the patients that have a coexisting normal pregnancy with a molar pregnancy, how do you manage those patients? Okay, fortunately, this is a rare condition. And uh, I have only seen uh, two patients in my own practice. Uh, in the old days, the recommendation was uh, termination of pregnancy. Uh, as soon as a mole and then a coexistent twin was diagnosed, we would recommend uh, termination. But in a recent, uh, recent literature review published in 2017, sorry, 2017, uh, in gynecology, the authors reported that about 60% of these pregnancies resulted in live birth with expectant management, which is a very good figure. So the current recommendation is that as long as the live twin is genetically normal and if there are no growth malformations, the pregnancy should be allowed to proceed uh, normally. And the decision for timing of delivery is based on maternal and fetal indications as in any other pregnancy. But uh, it's important to note that very high levels of HCG and the need for uh, medical termination due to complications seems to increase the risk for subsequent 
Toxoblastomy aplasia, according to the study. I see. And now, um, Sharon, let's talk a little bit about the differentiation between a low-risk versus a high-risk gestational trophoblastic uh, neoplasia. Yeah, the distinction between uh, low-risk and high-risk trophoblastic neoplasia is based mainly on the World Health Organization prognostic scoring framework. So those who have zero to six points are considered as low risk, and those scoring seven or higher as high risk. And this actually translates into the choice of chemotherapy. Uh, patients who are low risk are treated with single agents, whereas high risk patients are treated with a multi-agent regimen. Uh, currently, there is some controversy about those who score five or six because there is some evidence that these patients who used to be called uh, medium risk in the very old classification of the WHO prognostic scoring, which was later removed, there is some evidence that these patients are more likely to develop drug resistance uh, if they're treated with single agents. But since most of these patients have been cured by alternative single-agent drug regimens, it is still considered candid to treat uh, any patients with a score of 0 to 6 with a single-agent uh, regimen. And, and when choosing the, the, the treatment, what's the best recommendation for low-risk disease and what's the best recommendation for high-risk disease? Okay. The standard regimen for low-risk as I said earlier, was single-agent chemotherapy. And the two standard drugs that have been used are methotrexate and actinomycin D. The methotrexate is usually given weekly, whereas the actinomycin D is given bi-weekly. Uh, the methotrexate may be given with or without folinic acid, depending on the center and the regime that you can use. Uh, a small number of uh, randomized controlled trials done have shown that both the drugs are equally effective in treating low-risk uh, disease. And uh, the toxicity profiles varies between the two, and often the choice depends on the institution's experience with their regimen and the availability of the drug itself. Uh, for example, actinomycin D seems to be less available in some places compared to methotrexate. Now, in low-risk trophoblastic neoplasia, if the patient does not respond to, say, methotrexate, she can be switched to actinomycin D and vice versa. However, if there is no response to either of them, then she will have to be considered as a high risk and switched to a, a multi-agent regimen. Now, the standard regimen for high-risk disease is using multiple agents, and the most widely used regimen is known as the Yamako regime first described by Charing Cross in the United Kingdom. Now, Yamako stands for etoposide, etotrexate, actinomycin, uh, cyclophosphamide, and uh, vincristine. The O is actually the trade name for vincristine, oncovin. Uh, it consists of uh, these five drugs and is given on days one, two, and eight, and cycles are repeated, repeated till the HCG becomes negative, and then a further few cycles are given. The 
most important drugs in this five drug regimen are actually etoposide, metotexate, and nitromycin D. In our own experience in Singapore and in some other centers, the combination of just these three drugs seems to work as well as the five-drug emaco regime with much less toxicity. Uh, some centers in the United States used to use the combination of methotrexate, actinomycin D, and cyclophosphamide, often known as MAC, which has largely been abandoned now. But more recently, the concept of ultra-high-risk gestational tumultuating neoplasia has been put forward uh, mainly from Charing Cross in UK. In UK. Now, while there is no exact definition available for this category, it is best considered as any presentation of trophoblastic neoplasia that might be associated with early death within weeks of starting chemotherapy or poor long-term survival. Now, most of these early deaths occur as a result of massive hemorrhage. Uh, some of the factors that seem to be associated with this include a histological diagnosis of choriocarcinoma, multiple pulmonary mats, usually more than 20, associated with hemoptysis, multiple brain mats, large volume liver mats, and uh, profuse vaginal bleeding. So in these high-risk, ultra-high-risk patients, the introduction of a low-dose induction therapy with etoposide and platinum for the first one to three weeks before starting the standard chemotherapy has shown an almost complete elimination of early death from the hemorrhage. And uh, the rationale is that with a more gradual reduction in tumor volume, it reduces the risk of significant hemorrhage in critical organs. So the current recommendation for this ultra-high-risk patients is what is called the FEMA regime or etoposide platinum, alternating with etoposide, methotrexate, and actinomycin D. The, the core part is not used. Now, in some centers where for patients with brain meds, they use either intrathecal methotrexate or concurrent whole brain radi- irradiation. So, Sharon, you know, obviously the, we... Uh this is a, a wide topic and, and uh love to continue speaking with you and then actually we may uh we may run uh several additional podcasts on this uh on this topic but one last question i want to ask you is what what's the importance of referring a patient to a specialized center particularly for this disease i think in a rare condition as gestation problematic disease I cannot overemphasize the importance of referral centers where experts with experience of treating large number of patients can provide the optimal treatment. While benign conditions like complete mole and partial moles may be managed at individual institutions, all trophoblastic neoplasia should be referred to specialized centers whenever possible. Now, the United Kingdom is a shining example of this centralization of treatment. All cases of trophoblastic neoplasia are referred to only three centers in the whole of the United Kingdom, and they have some of the best outcomes in the world for this rare but potentially fatal condition. 
Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time. This has been incredibly informative. And I think this is a podcast that we're going to be going back to uh, routinely for uh, updates on this information. Uh, Sharon, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking with you, and I want to thank you for your time. No, it's okay. I, I hope, I, hope I've, uh, I just wanted to highlight the important points in clinical management, which people said uh, you don't always see in the, in the, in the textbooks. Well, thank you very, very much.